The Poetic Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Poetic Podcast with me, Jay Rosanna. In this episode, we will be hearing from newly published poet and author, Naima Shamshun. Hello, welcome back. Now, something a bit different today as we head to the virtual world and connect over the interweb and talk cultural duality, the diaspora community and poetry with Naima Shamshun. I have only known Naima Shamshun through online poetry spoken word events, but her poetic precision blows me away every time, so it seems kind of fitting that we chat today using that very same online technology in which our worlds cross so very often. But before we head in to meet Neymar, let's hear a short extract of her perform one of her poems, Limbo, from her new book. Africa Calling a convoy in the shadows, constant and ever-present, a home, but not a home, anointing my edges, still, I fit nowhere. Here, my name is foreign, my appearance questioned, but where are you from, originally, probes Goldilocks, cornfields in her hair. Limbo is such a beautiful poem and a beautifully flowing and constructed poem about a soul caught between two cultural worlds. So now, let's head in and meet the wonderful Neymar Shamshun. Neymar Shamshun, hello. Hello. So, Neymar, we normally do these in a coffee shop, but we're quite distant from each other, I think. So, if we were in a coffee shop, Neymar, what would be your beverage of choice? I think it would have to be a cortado. Oh, what is that? It's like um, an espresso, but with a little bit more milk. I like my no. coffee strong. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you have to go with that, Neymar? Because I, I always choose my cake first. <laughs> oh, gosh, let me think. Uh um, either uh, one of those lovely almond cherry bakewell slices they do. Boom! That's yeah. So that's one of my favourites too. So I think we know. I think we're on the same page, coffee shop wise. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've received in the last few days. I've received your book, COVID: The Wordy Wilds of a Mind Under Lockdown. So I want to talk about that in a bit, but if we can, I just wanted to everyone to get to know you and your background. So I know you have cultural duality. Yeah, uh, well, I'm I'm British born and my parents are from Morocco. I was the first uh, youngest and uh, the first member of my family to be born in the UK. I was brought up in a Muslim sort of household. My parents weren't super strict in that we didn't have to wear the hijab 
but they were conservative in that you didn't wear anything too revealing or too suggestive. So you know, it was a very constrained upbringing, I would say that, because as girls, you, there was this thing where you have to be a virgin when you get married. And my mother watched us like a hawk. So it was like, you go to school, you come home. We weren't allowed to socialise outside school hours. We weren't allowed to go on school journeys because there'd be boys there. And, you know, could you imagine the debauchery? So it was that kind of thing. So it always felt very constrained and very restricted. Wow. Okay. So are you an only child? No, I have uh, three siblings. I have an older sister who I'm very close with. And I think, you know, she's all, she was almost like a substitute mum, I'd say, because my parents worked three jobs each. I mean, we hardly ever saw them apart from on the weekend. We were your typical latchkey kids, you know, we'd take ourselves to school, bring ourselves home, that kind of thing. My sister, she, she taught me how to read. She'd go with me to the library every week so we could get new books to read. She'd read me bedtime stories. She introduced me to sort of the Narnia Chronicles and Roald Dahl. So, yeah, I would, my sister is three years older than me. But I'm quite close. Then I have two older brothers. Uh-huh. Uh, my other brother, I'm OK with. And my eldest brother, he fell out with my parents when I was about 10. And um, I think they kind of cut off contact. So we kind of got cut off as well, as happens when families fall out. Yeah, don't get me started on families, name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so presumably listening to the stories and being being kind of inspired, I suppose, by your sister at an early age, is that is that what got you into books? I mean, we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't have the internet in, back in my day. You know? My sister certainly encouraged that. And even my um, my older brother, when I was a teenager, he would often suggest sort of classics for me to read. I mean, he bought me a copy of The Catcher in the Rye when I was 12. And I mean, I just absolutely loved it. And he, uh, he introduced me to Lord of the Flies and F. Scott Fitzgerald and a lot of the classics. And my sister, yeah, she interest, she encouraged that love of reading. You know, and I, and reading was an escape because we had such a constricted life. You could just escape into the pages of the book and be anybody and be anywhere in the world. I must admit, I was I was a great um, bookworm when I when I was little. So I've got it here that you're a self-taught poet. Yeah. How does one go to poetry um, from your world? How did you find yourself writing poetry? No, I, I don't even know. I think you know, I started writing poetry probably. In my um, in my teen years, as I mean, as most teenagers do, we're full of angst and right. you know, got a yes. grudge against the world. So I think I probably started writing then, and I mean, I and I enjoyed writing, and it provided a good release for all of the things that I was feeling. But and I think then I got married. I was my I was forced into a, an arranged marriage when I was seventeen. I had my first child when I was eighteen, and I think you know life gets in the way. I. I, I then had another child and another child, and I was a full-time mum. And I think, you know, sort of writing just kind of took a back seat. When you were doing your writings, how much did your dual culture play into that, or didn't it at the moment? Was Were you just writing whatever came to mind? I think when I was a teenager, I was writing. It, I think it did influence there, because, I, I mean, I remember looking at some of the poems that, that I wrote as a teenager, and, and it was almost like reading a poem by a caged animal. You could feel you know, how trapped I felt in that life. And did, were you reading a lot of poetry then or were you still reading? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, my sister introduced me to Sylvia Plath. I mean, I, 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 loved, okay. uh, I loved Sylvia Plath. And, she, and um, she also introduced me to William Blake as well. And so, you know, I, I, I started reading poets around that time as well. 
Wow. And is there any poems that stand out in your mind? I think probably one of my all-time favourites has to be the the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock um, by Ellie. I mean, that, that has to be one of my all-time favourites because... And I think I've learned to appreciate it more as I've got older because it is a poem about somebody looking back at their life. And uh, you find that there are there is much more relatability. I mean, I loved it just because I thought it was beautiful the first time I read it when I was 15. But I think, you know, I've read it so many times since then. And I think, you know, maybe now at my age, more than ever, it resonates so much more. You've written something on your bio about the diaspora community, and I think that's people who live outside of the sort of ancient heritage. Yeah. So how does that play into your mind and how does that play into the work? Tell us a little bit more about that. I think it plays into it because it is one of those things where you where you belong to two identities. You kind of feel like, you know, you're intimately familiar with both but you don't necessarily completely belong to either because, you know, I would remember Morocco as a child and, you know, all my relatives in Morocco would be like, oh, it's the English one, it's the English one. And then, you know, and in, in the UK, in the, I mean, certainly in the 70s, I, you know, I experienced a lot of racism because, like, you know, I wasn't white English. I'd heard all the racial slurs and everything else. So it, it kind of just felt like, you know, well, in Morocco, like, I'm seen as the English one. And in the UK, uh, you know, I'm called racial slurs. So where exactly do I fit in? Yeah, because I, I mean, I was looking through your book and there, there is a lot of uh, Moroccan theme and, and references to Morocco in there. So was there was there a home? Was there a, a strong connection to culture? Absolutely. You know, I mean, there is there are so many things that I love about, you know, Moroccan culture, the music, the food, I mean, the hospitality. I mean, they're just, you know, some of the most welcoming and warm people. And, you know, I think maybe because of their faith, they are also very generous. I mean, you know, I remember one time going to Morocco and um, my father-in-law's neighbour had died and the wife was poor and didn't have any money and couldn't afford a funeral and um, basically my father-in-law went from door to door all through the neighborhood asking people to donate they were able to collect enough money to pay for the burial and it was just that sense of community and caring and and there is that in the culture and I and I think there though there are certainly so many beautiful things about the culture but then you know, there are also other things that are much harder to accept. I must admit I'm I'm a great food lover I do, I do love a lamb tagine, which I think has got a Moroccan root to it, although yes, it does, yeah. in England we've probably completely destroyed the idea of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what's your kind of, what's your favourite Moroccan, Moroccan goatee dish? Oh, I think my favourite would have to be a dish called um, pastela, which is like a uh, chicken pie, and it's uh, made with phyllo pastry, and you fill it with layers. You have a layer of spicy egg, you have a layer of sweet ground almonds with orange blossom, cinnamon, and um, sugar, and then you have a layer of cooked chicken, and they're layered up, and then they're wrapped into a phyllo pastry pie, and you cook it in the oven, and it's just one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted. Oh, wow. So is that like a sweet and a savoury at the same time? Yeah, it is. It's a sweet and savoury kind of pie. I think I'm in heaven already. <laughs> That's a chicken pastilla, is it? I'm gonna yes. have to find, I'm gonna have to dig one dig one out. It makes me think, you know, I was I was thinking like I've known you on the poetry scene online um for for a little while now. I was trying to remember when I first met you or first saw you. I first came came across you in the Zoom rooms and I was just like, you know, in awe of your your poetry. Oh, get away. <laughs> oh, no, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, and, and your voice is just so soothing. Oh, bless your heart. 
your your poetry struck me because it was very technically it seemed to came came across as very structured, very well put together, but also tells a, a really relatable story, and that runs through on your run runs through on your book. So tell me about your poetry writing style. What I know you're self-taught, but presumably looking at the poetry, you don't particularly write to specific forms. Is that no, right? Um, I think you know the poetry. It, it's just uh, one of those things, and I think I I love this about writing poetry. It's so much. I, certainly for me, it feels easier than writing because I'm I'm at the moment I'm in the process of writing a novel as well, and that oh. has been much more challenging. Whereas with poetry, I mean, I can just be sitting down watching Coronation Street on the TV, <laughs> and then suddenly I'll get kind of a thread in my mind, and I'll just follow the thread and then sort of kind of go where it takes me. It's funny you say Coronation Street because when I look, when I read through some of your poetry, even though they have like these deeper inner meanings, they are about often about everyday things, aren't they? They yeah. are often about the, the sort of um, everyday life things that you would find on a show like Coronation Street. You know, I'm, t- I'm thinking about what was the one that came to mind? One about a bicycle that you did, Ode to a yeah. Bicycle? Uh, where, where the Birds Don't Fly, I think was another one, graduation. And they all sort of stand out as going, yeah, they're quite well technically or structurally put together, and yet they they often use everyday things around you to be able to relate that. And I think that make that is the relatable part of of the poetry that you do. You know, I want I wanted to touch on things that I thought other people could relate to as well. And I mean, and and that was why I do also sort of explore mental health in the book and menopause as well, because these were things that I myself was struggling with during lockdown. Yeah, and I think does identity and race play an important part in your writing as well? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and it, uh, like I said, because I, I do feel sort of Moroccan in part, but then I also think that my perspective is very British in that you know, whereas I suppose culturally things like homosexuality and things like that are frowned upon, whereas I, you know, I have none of those prejudices, if you, if you will. I mean, you know, I thankfully I have been exposed to a culture that is very open-minded and accepting of all um, cultures and orientations. And I'm, so in that way, my I feel that my perspective is certainly very British and my humour, again, definitely very British. That definitely does come across. And, I, and you, you said here about your search for inner peace, which kind of I really like, because I'm on a search for inner peace as well. So when does that come from? Where does that <laughs> you know, poets were such a tortured lot, aren't we? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I've been doing my research on you and I found I found a bunch of your poems online. Is this book, the um COVID, the wordy wilds of a mind under lockdown? Is that your first book? This is my first book, yes. Okay, but presumably you've done you've done the poetry thing about being in anthologies, and I've seen that you you've been um on various websites, some of your poetry out there. Uh, how did you get from writing a few poems here and there to going? Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna release my first collection. It, it was a quite a, a strange experience because what it was was I submitted one poem into a poetry competition, and then I got an email from somebody, and they were like, "Oh, you know, we've seen your poem and we love your poem, and would like to offer you a book deal if you can provide a manuscript of ten thousand words. You know, we'd we'd be interested at in looking at your book." So that kind of gave me the incentive. So I need to get to work and type up 10,000 words. 
So, and um, so I started working on uh, on the poems and sort of just sort of writing down whenever I had a flash of inspiration. And then once I had the collection, I did. I went back to the people who'd contacted me, and I realised. Uh, I think I, re I realised even before I'd finished the collection, probably that they were a um, vanity press. I mean, they were saying, "Oh, you know, we can." you have to pay seven grand or whatever and I, and I was like okay right so yeah uh and but I thought you know what well I've got the complete completed collection but I may as well just send it out and then I just started sending it out to anybody and everybody who'll accept an unsolicited manuscript and I think I had almost a year of rejections and I was I think I was at the point where I thought you know maybe it's time to start looking at self-publishing and then I received an email from uh, Micah Press and initially it ended up in one of my old emails and I thought oh this is going to be another one of those vanity presses where they're going to blow sunshine up your ass and then hit you up for god knows how much money uh, so I kind of ignored it and then I got the same email in my main email and I was like well they seem quite keen so I sent uh, so I so I got in touch with them and I sent them the manuscript and they said you know we definitely were interested in publishing and they showed me a contract and I was still kind of waiting for the cat I mean I took the I showed the contract to my brother-in-law because he's a lawyer and I said to him you know it's all a really good contract for a first-time author just go for it wow it's a poet's dream isn't it it's a yeah I mean, you've got the year of rejection. Let's let's talk about that because we're no stranger. I'm no stranger to rejection, and I think as poets, we get more rejections than we get than we get published. How did you handle a year of rejection? What can you share with people? I think it's it's very demoralising because you're like it's like every every two or three days I was getting an email. Sorry, we're not interested, and you know, and it's very demoralising, and you kind of even question whether you know maybe I'm just not good enough. It's strange, isn't it? Because I, um, presumably you do in-person events as well. Yes. Yeah. So in person, I, I find in-person events and even Zoom events or online events, um, people, because I think we're talking to the poetry community, everyone's so supportive and loving. And you often go away from those things thinking, oh, my poetry is great until you send it somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then you get a you get a completely different a different viewpoint. And do you experience that? How or did you experience that? And how did you oh, find absolutely that? like I mean I I only started open mic actually because I, I'm terrified of speaking publicly. And then my publisher said to me, Oh, there's gonna be there might be a few events where we'd need you to uh, sort of read a few poems. And I was like, Oh my god, I'm gonna have to speak in public. So I thought, well, let me start signing up to some open mic events and sort of kind of just work on building up my confidence confidence so that when the time comes I don't totally freak out and I mean that's really how I got into open mic I just started looking for open um, open mic events in and around my area and I started going to them and I mean I'm not sure what it's like in with with your friends but certainly with my friends I mean as much as I love and adore them most of them are not interested in poetry or anything like that and it, and it kind of just feels like you found your clan doesn't it when you finally go to these events and you meet fellow writers and fellow poets and you can talk about all of the things that you love without worrying that you're boring the next person to death I mean I, I love joining sort of like the open mic community and then um obviously Lantern he was like oh you've got to go to the the zoom ones I didn't even know there were um, open mics online where is your scene where is your in-person scene is it in London I'm, I'm assuming it's in London yeah I mean I, I tend to sort of a lot of the times it's in kind of pubs and uh and bars who do sort of like open mic events they do music comedy poetry things like that 
is there a busy poetry scene there or do you just have your regular places that you like going I mean, there is a, it's a, there's a very busy scene. I mean, I mean, I've met some amazing poets. I mean, some of them have even um, performed at Glastonbury festivals. I, I, I was surprised at just how busy it was. You know, I thought oh, you're going to go there with going to be, you know, a few angst-ridden poets sort of like speaking to an empty room. And then I got there and I was like, wow, gosh, it is really, really buzzing here, isn't it? And have you thought, has this kind of inspired to do more? Because obviously, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've loved it. I've loved. It. I, I didn't realise I would enjoy doing open mics as much as I did, and it, it's a wonderful bonus of joining the, the writing community. I mean, it's been said to me I should do a one-woman show, and I'm like, oh, that is a big step. How do you? How would you feel about doing a one-woman show? Oh gosh, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm doing. Um, I'm joining um, Clive Osman. For his uh, one man show, but I, that's only a 15 minute slot, and that is fine. I think I can sort of hold my nerve for about 15 minutes, but like, if it was like a whole hour, I'm not sure. That was my thinking. I think I could possibly hold a room for 15 minutes if I pushed it, but I'm not. But I think after an hour, even I might be like thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I could push, push you through. Want to talk about your book now? COVID, the wordy wilds of a mind under lockdown. So that came out this year. When what roughly when did it come out? September? Oh, the third of October, I think. Third of October. I only just got my hands on it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a brilliant book. Um, but what gave you the idea to to say I've got something to say about COVID? It was a shared experience, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, not just nationally but globally I mean and I and I, I thought in that time you know sometimes I was sitting there and I was thinking and you know and I had bouts of sometimes depression where I would just feel really low and especially since I was going through menopause as well you kind of just I just felt like you know the kids had left home I was going through menopause I was kind of surplus to requirements and you know and I had some some dark dark moments and um and I mean, writing about them was very therapeutic, but I also thought, uh, but then, you know, we, we saw on the news that, you know, there was an increase in issues with mental health during lockdown. And I thought, well, you know, this is something that I think that a lot of people will find relatable, you know, the, the, the mindset during lockdown, which is why I had the title, The Wordy Wilds of a Mind Under Lockdown, because I said to my sister, you know, sometimes it felt like, I had all of these thoughts come crashing in at once and I kind of felt like Max and where the wild things are and you've got all of these wild animals coming at you. And and I think that's where the title came from. And it was, it's not necessarily an ex, an exploration of COVID in itself. It's an exploration of the mindset of a nation during a pandemic. Yeah, it was certainly a very uncertain time, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's just like we, everybody was looking for something to try and pull everyone together and just try and get through it the best we can. Because, of course, there was a time, which I'm assuming is the time when you wrote this, where we didn't really know what the future was going to be, did we? No, we didn't. And, you know, I mean, my, I, mean my, I, could, I couldn't see my parents and their elderly. My father has Alzheimer's and it, and it was really, really hard. And I think, mean, you know, and then I had to sort of pick out, we had to pick out one member of the family who could visit my, my, my parents. And even then I would just be standing at the door and not going in. Yeah, we had some very strange. I'll be honest with you, like, I'm not a great one for exercise. But as soon as they told us we weren't allowed to exercise, even I was like, I want to go out for a walk. And I <laughs> I probably did more walking during COVID and then as soon as the land ever done and as soon as they went right everyone can go out and exercise we were back to watching streaming movies and <laughs> sober. I mean I started walking during COVID as well I was walking so much but you know I actually kept it up and I started walking because 
I couldn't go to my gym. And yeah. then, like, after the gyms opened again, I just thought, well, you know, I'm not sure I can necessarily afford to keep up my membership at the gym anyway. And then I thought, well, you know, I mean, walking has been so wonderful because, to be honest, you know, I, I started exploring my own area. And I you know, and there were routes in my neighbourhood that I, I've lived in this area, you know, for, since the 70s. And, I, and I, was, I wasn't even aware of them. And I was like, but how have I lived in this area this long? And I did not know that this park was here or that this beautiful church was here. Exactly the same. So we were temporarily living somewhere and only because we were allowed to go go out for a walk for I think it was a maximum of an hour or something at the time we found that the there was a river a beautiful river walk like minutes from our house and we never even knew it was there before and yeah. it, and it exactly was still that. I mean I had the same thing with the canal I was I was, I was like wow we've got a canal by her. and it's a 10 minute walk from my house isn't that, isn't that strange and of course that all like those walks for me, like they inspired a lot of poetry as well. So you're out and sudden, suddenly your, your creative juices are going and, and then you're writing and writing and writing, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I've, I've got one sort of about my walks in the in the collection as well. Sort of Grand Union Canal. Right. Well, that leads me nicely on to <laughs> I was going to ask if you wouldn't mind sharing um, one or two of your poems with us. And if are you okay doing that? I'm happy to do that. Thank you. Now I'm happy for you to choose, and if you can't think of one, I have two in mind. <laughs> well, I'm happy for you to suggest whichever you'd like me to read. The one, the one that really struck out to me in your book uh, was "Where the Birds Don't Fly." It's on page forty-four. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. I was, I was, I was about to start flicking <laughs> it in my book. <laughs> Where the birds don't fly, in the places where buildings crumble like sandcastle, the sky coloured ashen with explosive residue, where the sacrificial lambs wage power's battles, the borders flooded by advancing tides, rushing towards safer sands, propelled by a hostile surge, taking only their frantically bagged lives. The homes where the sirens turn the blood cold, the blasts increasingly louder, young, fearfully questioning eyes find no answers, strategic chaos takes hold. In the ruins where the tears run dry, reclaim the dead from the debris, only the dead are free, without a song where the birds don't fly. Thank you. Wow, what a beautiful poem, Nema. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration of that poem. It was a collection of things. I mean, it was seeing the situation in Myanmar with the Rohingyas, seeing what was happening with the um, the Uyghurs in China, you know, uh, seeing people who were being evicted from their homes in, you know, Israel, you know, in Palestine. And, you know, and then we saw the, the, the start of the incursion, or by Russia into Ukraine. And, I, and it was just like looking at the world and seeing flashpoints of conflict all over the world and the misery that it, you know, it triggered. Now, to balance things out a bit, <laughs> how about Ode to a Bicycle? I never learned to ride a bike, but once I longed to whiz through air, bell ringing, Ribbons of windswept hair. I think 
one day I might. Mum said, bikes are not for girls. A good girl's legs politely furl. Good girls aren't free. Cultural captivity. Then later, I discovered bikes aren't for hymens is what she really meant. Even back then, silently dormant, a commodity, undiscovered. The jingle of daisy, daisy, of a bike ride on a lazy vestal Sunday afternoon, when all the world is a bloom. I contemplate that maybe it is not the bike. Thank you. Fabulous. Where would people find your book, Naima? Where's the best place for people to go if they want to buy your book? It's available on my publisher's uh, website, Micah Press, and also on Amazon. And so for everybody who's listening, this is called COVID, the wordy wilds of mind under lockdown. Assuming that you're not going to like retire on, on the amazing sales of um, this book. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a poet's life. And um, so what's next for you? Well, I have just finished my second collection and I have started sending it out to to publishers. Whether that will bear bear fruit or not remains to be seen. Is there anything you can tell us? And I I know it's difficult when you're sending sending books out um, to publishers. Is there anything you can tell us and tease us about your book? Um, The second collection is called Saging, Not Aging. Is that like wisdom when you say? Yeah, so you're sort of saging all the demons out of your life, you know. Oh, I like it. Yeah, so it's a collection that explores transition and not just our own transition, but a transitioning world and our relationship with those in our lives because our our relationships ultimately transition as well you know there are people that we knew that are no longer part of our lives there are new friends that we've made that have become friends for life you know our our relationships are constantly transitioning just as the world is and as we are and I and that is what the collection focuses on I think I hope you find a publisher for you fairly soon. I hope so too, gosh. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you online? Where's a good place for people to go? Well, I'm on Insta, Shamshoon on Insta, and I'm also on Facebook as well. Um, I'm a terrible, terrible tech a technophobe, so I haven't got around to setting up my own page or anything like that yet. I'm <laughs> waiting for my son to get back from his holidays and then I'll start pestering him. Well, Naomi Shamshun, it was absolutely lovely talking with you today. Thank you very much for sharing your poetry. Thank you for having me. And with that, we reach the end of our wonderfully insightful chat with Naomi Shamshun. Thank you for joining me on the Poetic Podcast. You can find my poetry videos on YouTube and TikTok, and I hope you will join me again. I am Jay Rosanna, and this has been The Poetic Podcast. Talk soon. Bye-bye.
I know I met you first, I think, in person. We were both at Cheltenham Poetry Festival recently, weren't we? No, I don't think we've ever met in person. I've never met. Were you not at the poetry? Were you not at Cheltenham? No, I haven't been to Cheltenham. Oh, I'll have to edit that out then. I'll have to edit that out, Eamon, because I'm like, 